All right, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 10 as we continue in our series through Mark's gospel. Uh, We're going to be looking today at verses 13 to 31. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this in the bulletin. Uh, This scene follows directly on what we saw last week. The Pharisees, remember, had come and tested Jesus by asking him about marriage and divorce. Jesus had answered brilliantly as always, but he had ended with a challenge, a challenging the disciples to all-out discipleship, whatever it costs. Well, that same theme continues today, uh, except today he sounds a very clear note of grace. The only way to give all for Jesus is to receive the grace of Jesus. And so let's uh, talk about that theme this morning after we read. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Uh, There are some questions that are more important than others. Do you agree? Uh, I think in this passage, you find asked twice, 
in two different ways, the most important question that anyone could ever ask or answer in their entire life. You see it first there in verse 17, if you'll look at that again. It's the rich young man who says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's the first version of the question. The second version comes down in uh, verse 26. The disciples, who can be saved? It's the same question, right? Just in two different forms. And it is the most important question. How do we get in? How do we come into relationship with God? How do we get saved? How do we go to heaven? Can we be good enough for God? In fact, I'll tell you that whatever your answer to that question is, even if you don't know what your answer to that question is, is actually the operating system running in the background of your life affecting everything you do. Your answer to that question is like an operating system running everything else that you do, even if you're not aware of what your answer is. Think about, for example, the, um, the, uh, the life of the French philosopher Voltaire. Have you ever heard of Voltaire? Probably have. He was famous in the 1700s for uh, boldly opposing God and Christianity and the church and the king and everything else that was happening in France at the time. He was a very bold, in fact, you might say arrogant person. And yet, famously, when Voltaire got sick at the end of his life, he suffered tremendously in the last months of his life. He died a slow, painful death from various diseases. And uh, he lost all of his confidence in those last months. Uh, He would call in a priest and confess his sins and get absolution, and then he would go back on it and take it back. And then he would call in a priest again a few, months, you know, a few weeks later, and then he would renounce it again. And then he would call a priest in and renounce it again. He couldn't decide which side he wanted to be on. In fact, the person who was there watching him as he took his last, last breath writes that the last thing the great man did was let out a shriek of terror before his last breath. Now, that's what I mean. His answer to this question, which I would tell you was a wrong answer, according to the Bible, was a wrong answer, was the operating system behind his life. And when it came time to put the death disk in (laughs) to the system, it could not compute. This morning, as your pastor, I want you, and I want actually everybody, even people who aren't in here, everybody in our city, I want them to hear Jesus' answer to this question. It is my life's mission to have you hear Jesus' answer because it's a good answer. It's an answer unlike any other because Jesus says this, in order to be good enough for God, you have to receive from God. The things that God is seeking from our lives as human beings are the things that God himself must supply to our lives. It's by grace alone. It's not by works. And so if you'll look at your bulletin, Jesus uh, makes this point in three different ways we want to talk about them this morning. First of all, he illustrates the point with the little children that come to him. Uh, Then he explains the point to the rich young man. And then finally, he applies the point to his disciples at the end of the passage. He illustrates it, he explains it, he applies it. Let's talk about that. First of all, the illustration, which is very picturesque. Uh, There in verses 13 to 16, what you have are 
uh, people, probably men, because there in verse 13 where it says they were bringing, uh, the word they is in the masculine form. So probably we're supposed to have in our minds that these are fathers or maybe older brothers or older cousins or uncles who are bringing very little children to Jesus as they're going along the road so that Jesus can bless them. Uh, they have seen what happens when Jesus touches people, right? And so have we, right? As we've read Mark's gospel, we've seen that blind men see, deaf men hear, mute men speak, you know, lame men walk when Jesus touches them. And so as good parents or good older brothers, that they want nothing more for their kids than that Jesus would touch them. Now, by the way, just as a side note, the same thing is true today of fathers and mothers, the best thing you can do for your kids is figure out a way to get them to Jesus early and often so that the touch of Jesus in the gospel might be applied to them and embraced by them. This is a good thing that these parents are doing. And so why is it, notice, why is it that the disciples at the end of verse 13 rebuke these parents for bringing their kids It's like barring the door to Sunday school and refusing to let anyone enter. Why would you do that? Well, Jesus' response, I think, gives us the answer. Notice how Jesus responds. When Jesus saw it, he was what? Indignant. Angry. Ticked. Uh, that word is not used of Jesus very often, only a few times, and this is one of those times. When he saw his disciples trying to prevent little children, and these were very little children, we know that because they had to be brought, and because at the end of the passage, verse 16, Jesus has to take them up in his arms. Uh, in fact, Luke tells us they were infants, like babies, little kids. When Jesus saw them trying to block little kids from coming to him, Jesus was ticked. Because clearly the disciples had misunderstood something about his kingdom that they should have understood. And so he says to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them by any means. Don't put a blockade in their way because, because for such, to such, belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom belongs to kids. In fact, if you don't become like a kid, you can't enter it yourself. You see, in the disciples' mind, that didn't make sense at first because they're thinking king and kingdom. Here we are going to Jerusalem. Jesus says when we get there, he's going to be raised. They're thinking that means he's going to become king. He's going to get a crown. He's going to kick the Romans out, and we're going to be right there with him kicking butt. And we're going to get a place on a throne next to Jesus. And if that's the case, what in the world can a baby do to help that? What can a toddler contribute to a war? Nothing. And yet Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. My kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is a kingdom that's spiritual, number one, but it's a kingdom also that is based on your ability to receive by grace what you cannot earn for yourself. The kingdoms of this world and the, the, actually everything in this world is usually based on merit, Right? Everything you do, you go to apply for a job, you go to try to join a club, you even just try to rent an apartment, 
You try to get a loan for a car. You try to get a mortgage. And what do you have to do? You have to fill out paperwork presenting your resume, your credentials, and you have to convince them that you're good enough. And it's only when you convince them that you get it. Everything in life is like that. And so when you and I, just like the disciples, when we come to the kingdom of God, it's a little bit shocking to hear that the last thing we need is a resume. And the first thing we need is the disposition of a child. This passage is sometimes misunderstood. Sometimes people say, see, look, children, they're innocent, they're good, they're sweet. And if you'll become innocent, good, and sweet, you can enter the kingdom of God too. Have you ever heard that? Become like Jesus, little lambs. They're so good, children are. The person who says this has either not watched children or they've watched children with really thick rose-colored glasses, right? Can I get an amen from the parents? Even as small children, you do not have to teach them sin or evil or lying or anything. You don't have to teach them anything bad. What you do have to teach them is all the good, which proves what the Bible says. From our mother's womb, we are sinners. From our mother's womb, we've gone astray. We're born into this world in negative position with the Lord. So what Jesus is pointing to is not to the innocence and the goodness of children. He's pointing to their willingness to receive something that's done by somebody else. That's the thing children are good at, actually. Especially the younger they are. The infants are the best at this. They know how to receive something that is bestowed upon them without pride. When you reach about six or seven, that starts to wear off, doesn't it? And you start to say, I want to do it myself. I don't want to receive anything from anybody. I am my own person. And Jesus says, that has to go. And you have to act like a child to enter my kingdom because it's a kingdom of grace, which means a kingdom of humble dependence and reception. What an illustration, isn't it? When, when Peter, James, John, and all the rest of the disciples saw Jesus pick up a baby and put him in his arms and just pray over that baby and touch that baby's head and bless that baby, they were supposed to see themselves in that. And you and I are supposed to too. We're supposed to see this is exactly who I am. At least it's who I should recognize that I am. Helpless, unable to care for myself, totally in need and dependent on the care of another person. And wow, what a beautiful thing it is for me to just let Jesus pick me up into his arms and claim me as his own. Beautiful illustration. Now secondly, I want you to see the explanation of that illustration. Because although we can hear the illustration, it's hard for us sometimes to get that it applies to us. Because here we come, leaving a world of resumes, you know, walking into the kingdom of God, and we have a really hard time putting our resumes away. And so look at verse 17. There's this man who, after the, the babies are brought to Jesus and the little children, this man comes up and he, he's rich. We learn that there in verse 22, he had great possessions. Matthew and Luke tell us, tells us he was also young and a ruler, a rich young ruler. So he's got everything. He's got riches, he's got youth, and he's got power. What more could you want? And yet this man comes and he kneels before Jesus. He runs to Jesus and kneels before him. What a thing to do. 
it probably made the disciples think, okay, maybe this is what Jesus is talking about. Maybe this guy actually gets it. Maybe he's the one that's becoming like a little child. Maybe we need to imitate him because here's this guy who's so powerful and yet he's running through the streets and he's falling down on his face before Jesus. Wow, he's like an infant. Until, you, until the man opens his mouth. What does he ask Jesus? That great question, the one that I said was the most important question in life. But pay attention to how he asks it. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's wrong with that? What must I do, I do, to inherit do you understand that do and inherit don't really go together? Do and paycheck, that goes together. Do and reward, yeah, that goes together. But do and gift, do and inheritance don't go together. And inheritance is received because somebody else did. And actually probably because they did and died. And then you receive. Sounds a whole lot like what Jesus did on the cross. He did and died that we might receive. Well, this guy doesn't get it because he's asking about what he can do to inherit as if he could earn it. He's, he's falling on his face, so he seems humble, and yet he's pulling out his resume. And what Jesus does next is beautiful. He does for this man what each and every one of us need him to do for us. He shows him what he lacks. He does that in two ways. Notice first, he calls into question the man's very definition of goodness. And you and I need that too. We need Jesus to call into question our very definition of goodness. Jesus says in verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, now we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that this means Jesus is claiming not to be God here. I mean, we know from other places that Jesus very much does claim to be God, the Son of God who came into the world with all the power and the glory that belongs to God alone. He is unique in that way. He's not merely a man, although he is a man. Instead, what we should see is that Jesus is calling into question what this man means by saying, good teacher, what must I do? The man means something different. This man does not know Jesus is God. He doesn't believe that. He, he probably doesn't even know enough to know that. And so he assumes Jesus is just another man like him, except for he has, has attained a level of goodness that he has not been able to attain yet. And so he's coming to Jesus to ask, how can men like us become good like you are? And Jesus says, wait a minute, why are you calling me good? If you think I'm just a man, how can you call me good? Because there is, listen, no one good except God. The way Paul puts it in Romans is there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. No one. Not one single person in all of history. The Bible says God's eyes scan the whole earth to find people whose hearts are fully committed to him. And when he does so, he finds no one. We've got to have a different definition of goodness when we're talking about inheriting the kingdom of God, don't we? 
Because I'll grant you this. You can be a good person in the sense that you're good compared to other people. There are plenty of good people in that sense. You have been better than your neighbor. You have not done the bad that they've done or you've done the good that they've done. Great. You can be good in that sense. But Jesus is saying real goodness must be measured by God's goodness because God's the creator and he made you to be good like he's good, not just good comparatively. Good comparatively to him. Holy. And in that sense, there is no one good enough for God. There's no one who measures up. We have all gone astray. Redefine goodness so that you can understand your need. And then secondly, notice what Jesus does. He begins to bring the law out. And he uses the spiritual work of God's law to humble the man. The good old Ten Commandments. They're indispensable. They're indispensable in your life and they're indispensable in the life of the world. Where the Ten Commandments are not known and understood, there is no hope that people will see their need for the gospel. And so Jesus lists at least some of the Ten Commandments. I say five and a half of the ten. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. That's the half one. Because it's only half of what do not covet means. And then honor your father and your mother. Say, think about it. He does not list the first four, which are all about worshiping God. Have no other gods. Don't make any graven images. Don't uh, take the name of the Lord in vain and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he doesn't fully list the tenth one, which is do not covet. Why does Jesus list these and not those? Think about it. Well, I think it's because these are the ones that are the easiest to reduce to their external appearance. And they're the easiest ones, therefore, for us to pat ourselves on the back that we've done well. After all, not many people have actually physically murdered someone. Thank the Lord, right? God's happy for that. Uh, not many people, or not, I mean, more people have done this, but still relatively few have actually committed physical adultery. What about stealing? Well, more people have done that than the other two, but still, you know, it's still probably a, a minority, although maybe a strong minority. Not bearing false witness? Okay, there you got a majority of us who've broken that one outwardly. Defrauding, honoring father and mother? Okay, that gets more of us. But still, those things are very easy on the outside to look like we're doing pretty good and to tell ourselves we're doing pretty good. Now, we know that Jesus won't let us do that even with those commandments. Because in Matthew 5, he says, listen, even if you haven't killed somebody physically, if you've hated them in your heart... If you've spoken words that are cutting and hurtful, you've actually murdered them in seed form. You're guilty of murder in seed form. If you haven't gotten into bed with somebody, if you've lusted in your heart for someone who's not your spouse, you've committed adultery inwardly. I mean, Jesus won't let us off the hook even with these, but these are the ones that are easiest to hide behind. There are so many people, and maybe some of you in this room, who think, I'm a good person, and what you mean is what this man meant. I have not physically done these particular things. But think about it. Have you given your heart wholly to the Lord? Because that's what the other five, four and a half commandments are really about. And you can't really hide much. 
having no other gods, worshiping God the way he commands, sincerely taking his name and not taking it in vain, keeping a whole day in seven just for the Lord. You can't, you can't fake that stuff. That's stuff that requires true spiritual life. And when every single one of us puts ourselves against that standard, every one of us ought to be like, oh my goodness, I am not good. The life that God looks for for me, I do not have. You see what Jesus' work is with this man? It is a humbling work using the law of God so that he'll realize he needs to become like a child too. Let me encourage you. Don't just read and study the parts of the Bible that are about forgiveness and love and joy and peace and all that. Study the parts of the Bible that are about thou shalt and thou shalt not too. Like really get to know them. Like really seek what is God telling me to do and not do? What kind of heart does he really want me to have? Because if you don't do that, your ability to pull out your resume is just way too strong. You will convince yourself you're good all day long and I will too. Until we put ourselves consistently under the searching lamp of God's commandments. When uh, the great preacher George Whitfield preached in America in the 1700s, there was a farmer up in New England named Nathan Cole who wrote about going to hear Whitfield speak in an open field. And he said this, this is great. He says, when I heard him preach, he gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, he gave me that heart wound. My old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness would not save me. That's always what the law and the gospel, the word of God does for us too. It's what Jesus was doing for this man. He was loving the man and so he gave him a heart wound. That's what it says. I mean, look, look again at verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so he said, this one thing you lack. I mean, what an opposite thing than what we think. We think if you love me, here's what you need to do. Affirm me. Tell me how wonderful I am. My love language is words and pour it on me. That's what we think. And yet Jesus says, I love you, therefore I'm going to tell you what you lack. I'm going to give you a heart wound so that you'll find yourself needing to be carried by me as a child in its father's arms. Jesus summarizes the whole point there in verses 23 when he gets the disciples to see it. Children, he says. Notice how he calls them children. This is one of the few places in the Gospels that Jesus calls his disciples children. Surely a connection with what he's just done, right? With taking the children into his arms. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter. If you think you have wealth, you just can't enter until you realize you're poor and broke. Spiritually. And they were astonished and they said, who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, with God it's not. All things are possible with God. God can give the life that he seeks. He can supply the salvation that he's looking for and that we need. And that's precisely what he does. But we can only see that by having the law of God explained to us and applied to us. 
Now, lastly, and this one will be <clears throat> quicker than the first two, uh, Jesus doesn't just illustrate and explain. He applies the truth to his disciples. <clears throat> and I apologize. The extra meeting has taken my voice. <clears throat> uh, look there at the end, <clears throat> verses um, 28 to 31. Uh, have y'all ever experienced buyer's remorse? <clears throat> yeah, a few times maybe. Uh, normally buyer's remorse happens because you realize you paid too much for something than it was actually worth. You know, you thought it was going to be worth it, you paid the money, and then you realize, ah, I didn't really need this. It really isn't what it said it was. Amazon lied or whatever, you know. And you want to send it back. You wish you could get your money back. Well, Jesus looks at his disciples. He's just said some hard things. He told the man he needed to sell everything he had to follow him. He was pressing again that spiritual demand of the law, which is not just to outwardly obey God, but to give your whole self to God. Thank you, sir. But to give your whole self to God. And he looks at his disciples and he assures them that if they have left everything to follow him, they will never, ever experience buyer's remorse ever look at what it says verse 28 Peter said to him see we have left everything and followed you now I was talking to some <clears throat> fellow pastors this week about this and not everybody agrees with me on this so you might not but I think Peter is actually saying something right here something good uh, oftentimes that's not true of Peter. He, you know, he, he puts his foot in his mouth, but I don't think he does here. I mean, think about it. He has left everything, humanly speaking. Peter had a house. He's not living in it. Peter had a wife. She's back home. Peter had a boat. He hasn't been fishing in three years. I said that in the last service, and Bob Scranton couldn't believe it. <laughs> what sacrifice, right? He hadn't been fishing in three years. He hasn't worked in his family business for three years because he's been following Jesus around. I mean, this is a true statement. We have left everything to follow you, Jesus. It's as if he's saying, Jesus, is it going to be worth it? What are you going to do if you're talking about the kingdom being a kingdom that infants can receive? And it's not going to be this crown and sword and all that. Then what are we going to get out of it? Look at what Jesus says to Peter. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mothers and so forth for my sake who will not receive a hundred times more in this life. And yes, fine print with persecutions, which is some significant fine print, but nevertheless, compared to a hundred times over, I mean, those of you who are into investments and stuff, what if someone was able to promise you a hundred times of your investment? Would you take it? Yeah. And yet that is precisely what Jesus promises, not just in heaven, okay? Jesus doesn't, he says, in heaven you'll have eternal life in the age to come. But in this life, you'll receive a hundred times more than anything you leave behind if you come to me. And how many people have, have experienced that? They had to leave family behind to follow Jesus, and yet they found families. 
Yeah, they have less money because they're giving more of it away to serve other people, and yet they're a part of a generous community themselves, and they're receiving that generosity of the communion of the saints. So many people through history have found Jesus' words a hundredfold to be true. In fact, let me tell you this. Before Jesus asks us to do it, this is precisely what Jesus himself did. Who is the richest, youngest ruler of all rulers to ever be? Who had riches beyond compare? The cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, the heavens and the earth are mine, says the Lord. Who is young because he is eternal, always the same, the same yesterday, today, and forever, no wrinkles, no spots or sagging? Who rules the kings of this earth? Was it not Jesus? And yet, what did Jesus do throughout his whole life? He sold everything and he gave it to the poor. And through that, he found treasure in heaven. Treasure that he can then share with us as we come and follow him. And so when Jesus Christ says to us, lay your resume down, quit trying to earn salvation, come to me for salvation, be willing to give up everything because God is requiring of you your very soul, not just part of you, but all of you, not just your bank account, but you, not just your time, but you. You can know you will not be ripped off and you'll never have buyer's remorse for two reasons. One, Jesus always keeps his promise. Two, Jesus himself went first and did it and it worked. He gave up his life and now he's crowned with glory and honor in heaven forever. The same thing will happen with us. Do you see what this is all about? That great question, how can I be saved? How can I be good enough for God? How can I get eternal life? How can I go to heaven? That's the greatest question in the world. Voltaire's answer was dead wrong, and it could not handle death. But here's Jesus' answer. It must be received as a gift. And when it's received as a gift, that's the only way that real spiritual life, real obedience to God's commands can even be possible for people like us. Otherwise, it's just people pretending we're good because we're better than Hitler. It's pretense. If you want to really be good, you must have the Holy Spirit. You must have the work of Jesus. And that can be received only as a child would receive the blessing of someone holding that child in its arms. Wow. What are you holding back from Jesus? What part of you, or maybe you're holding all of you from Jesus? I think most of us would have to say there's something that we're holding back. There's some way that we're hedging our bets. Listen, why are we doing that? What about Jesus do we find so untrustworthy that we won't give it? What about him? What has he done to make himself untrustworthy? Can we not trust the richest, youngest of all ruler of rulers? 
who gave it all to make us rich, can we not trust him? Let me encourage you. Come to Jesus. Come without your resume and come to receive a hundred times more and in the age to come, everlasting life.